In early June, an unofficial comment coming from an unnamed representative of U.S. Customs and Border Protection stated that border wall construction will avoid the historic Eli Jackson and Jackson Ranch Chapel cemeteries. This report was latched onto by numerous news sources at the time, but contrary to this unofficial report, CBP recently released a proposal to construct approximately 95 miles of new border wall in the South Texas counties of Star, Hidalgo, and Cameron. Nowhere within this official release doesn't mention that the Eli Jackson or Jackson Ranch Chapel cemeteries will be spared from border wall construction that could begin as soon as September 30th. And, in fact, maps of the construction that they released, along with the statement, show the wall going through the areas of the cemeteries. This element of the official release has received little attention in the media. Additionally, CBP has not responded to our request for comment on their plans for border wall construction at the cemeteries. Protectors of the cemetery are currently pushing for senators to keep language included in the version of the 2020 Homeland Security Appropriations Bill written by the House of Representatives, which includes language that exempts historical cemeteries such as the Eli Jackson and Jackson Ranch Chapel Cemeteries from border wall construction. The bill passed committee markup and will move on to the House and Senate to be voted on soon. My name is Vinisha Patel Adams with bellyofthebeastmedia.org. Through the creation of this piece, I lived for over half a year at Yalui Village at the Eli Jackson Cemetery, alongside the Ishtokna peoples of the Carrizo Comecrudo tribe of Texas, who are protecting the resting places of their ancestors and relatives, as well as their sacred homelands of Somisek from border wall construction. Most of the singing you will hear is by Krista Mancias, the next tribal chair of the Carrizo Comecrudo tribe of Texas. This audio piece was produced for the indigenous rights magazine Intercontinental Cry and was adapted from an article by another resident of Yalui Village, Garrett Blair, for intercontinentalcry.org. This is Resisting the Border, Part 1. Shamapiquis, 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 colma semicle. Shamapiquis, shamapiquis. The Estocna Nation, also known by their Spanish-given name, the Carrizo Comecrudo Tribe of Texas, are indigenous to both sides of the Rio Grande and throughout so-called Texas, northern Mexico, and eastern New Mexico. The Estocna call this land Somisec. Today, the 1600-member tribe is fighting for a future that resembles their past, one devoid of borders. In South Texas, the Rio Grande, a river held sacred by the Estocna, marks the international border of the United States and Mexico. Two miles north of this sacred river lies a quarter-acre plot of weathered headstones and crosses, the Eli Jackson Cemetery. There are about 150 people buried here, including freed slaves, ancestors of the Estocna, and World War I and II veterans. The cemetery lies just a few yards south of the earthen levee where the border wall will be built. The Eli Jackson Cemetery is at risk of destruction and desecration as it lies within the border wall's planned 150-foot enforcement zone. Heavy machinery is currently clear-cutting these areas along the border, turning forests into mulch, so that both sides of the wall can be monitored by agencies like U.S. CBP, Customs and Border Protection, a branch of DHS, the United States Department of Homeland Security, who violently apprehend, sometimes killing, 
people migrating across the U.S.-Mexico border. Since January 2010, at least 90 people have died as a result of an encounter with United States border agents, with many more brutalized, sometimes causing life-altering injuries, as recorded by the Southern Border Communities Coalition. One of those people, Claudia Patricia Gomez Gonzalez, a 20-year-old indigenous woman from Guatemala, had made the nearly 1,500-mile journey to the United States in order to pursue a job as an accountant and earn money for her college education. She was unarmed when she was shot in the head and killed by Border Patrol agents in Rio Bravo, Texas. The Trump administration has allowed at least 24 people to die in ICE custody since Trump's inauguration, which, according to migrant advocacy groups, are due to the inhumane conditions they are being held in. At least four more immigrants died shortly after being released by ICE, and seven migrant children have died in United States federal custody since September with five indigenous children dying in United States federal custody since December. Most of the children died after getting sick inside United States concentration camps. These are the holding facilities run by Customs and Border Protection, deemed, quote, detention centers. Despite three migrant children already dying due to the flu and with flu season just around the corner, CBP has stated they will not provide vaccines to migrants in their custody. North of the Rio Grande River, in so-called Texas, the Ishtokna have started to rebuild their ancestral villages in the way of the border wall and in opposition to the continuing legacy of colonization by the United States. The village is called Yalui, which means butterfly, in the Ishtokna language, hokum, in honor of the butterflies whose habitats will be destroyed by the border wall if it's allowed to be built. Yalui village is on the grounds of the Eli Jackson Cemetery. The fight is in the courts as well. Earth Justice, an environmental law nonprofit organization, is representing the Ishtokna and other descendants of those laid to rest at the cemetery, like the Ramirez family, who you will hear from in part two of this piece. Together, along with several other organizations and one private property owner, they have filed a lawsuit to stop the wall from destroying the cemetery and other areas. Dr. Christopher Basaldu is an anthropologist and a member of the Carizo Comecrudo tribe. He has been a resident of Yalui Village for the last six months, living out of his tent at the Eli Jackson Cemetery in defense of the ancestors laid to rest there and at the Jackson Ranch Chapel Cemetery. That's just a short walk down the street. The birds in this region are the most diverse avian population north of the Mexican border. You can hear some of them singing at Yalui Village during our interviews. The goal is to stop the wall. The goal is to make sure that this cemetery is not destroyed, that this cemetery and the chapel are not damaged or even threatened. The goal is to educate the public 
about the importance of these historic sites, about indigenous and aboriginal history, meaning the Eshtokna people, to raise awareness about how humble people, whether they're tribal members or not, would be severely detrimentally impacted by the proposed wall and the accompanying proposed border enforcement zone. There are other powerful entities that were threatened by the proposed wall that have been able to fight the wall because they have access to resources. In this stretch of land here, there are people that don't have resources. The tribe is trying to stand up and give voice to the people who are deliberately silenced in this process. So one of the things that the tribe wants to do is to help educate the general public and remind people that it's a lie from Texas history and American history that there were no aboriginal people in this area and that the aboriginal people of this area still exist and the descendants of the aboriginal people in this area still exist even if they may have forgotten. As Dr. Basaldu explains, Carizo and Comecrudo are Spanish given names. In the tribe's language of Hokum, they are Eshtokna, or human beings. Eshtokna is the the people's name for themselves. It literally just means human beings or the human people. But the Spanish names Carrizo and Comecrudo, those are words that were used by Spanish invaders and Spanish colonizers to describe the aboriginal people here in the Rio Grande Valley and on north side and southern side of the Rio Grande River. Carrizo is just the Spanish word for a particular type of reed, which is actually not an indigenous plant, but it's an invasive, which I find very interesting. The invaders gave us a name for, the, you know, the invader name for some of the Eshtokna, the human people, is to name them after a reed which was an invasive species. Comecrudo is far more insulting. The intention of the Spaniards was to describe particular clans or villages of the human beings as so uncivilized that they would eat food raw. That's what Comecrudo literally means, is eat, eating raw food. But of course, these are the names that the invader and the colonizer uses for their perception and their records in order to describe Aboriginal people. The name or the words Eshtoke Na just means the human beings. Now, beyond that, there were clan names. Even though all of this is sacred homelands to the Eshtokna, there are certain clans that would live in different areas. The Eshtokna were one nation with many bands and clans. These bands lived in different villages and areas within their homelands of Somisek. Yalui village at the Eli Jackson Cemetery is on the grounds of the ancestral villages where the Crane, Canyon, and Bear clans lived. Mariposa village, which the tribe set up at the National Butterfly Center in so-called Mission, Texas, is in the homelands of the Kotoname band. This village was also set up in the path of border wall construction. The bands of the Ishtokna were nomadic moving up and down the Rio Grande to allow resources to naturally replenish themselves, constantly moving their villages, which elsewhere in Somisek was dependent on how far water was. The Ishtokna burial grounds and artifacts are all along the river. They are fighting for their ancestors buried all along the banks of this sacred river, known to them as Ahumataumatel, or the Spirit River. Shamapiquis, 
As Spanish colonizers came into these lands in the late 17th and early 18th centuries, they enacted a system of missions to convert the indigenous population to Christianity and to Spanish culture. They were not only forcing the indigenous population to convert to Catholicism, these colonizers also exploited their labor. In the background, you hear Makwade, a resident of the village from the Second Fox Nation, who has joined the Eshtokna in defending these lands. He is singing and praying as we interview Dr. Basaldu at Yalui Village. Because under Spanish colonization, um, one of the systems of colonization that Spain enacted in the so-called New World was the encomienda system, which in broad strokes general history, under the rulership and the authority of the unified kingdom of Castile and Aragon, what we now think of as modern Spain, the crown would grant an encomendero, a male, and if we want to get really specific, a straight European male, ostensibly straight, the crown would grant the encomendero an encomienda, and an encomienda was organized and granted through the colonial government, but from the crown. And the basic concept is that the encomendero was granted or given all of the land within the boundaries of that encomienda, but the human beings that were already on that land become his labor. So if he wants to build his hacienda, he has the labor already there. Starting in 1767, prior to the existence of the Eli Jackson Cemetery and the Jackson Ranch Chapel Cemetery, this land functioned as an encomienda under a Spanish royal land grant known as Porcion 71, awarded to Narcisco Cavazos. You have to force these human beings toward you with support from the crown and support of military forces or mercenary forces. People were forced at gunpoint or tortured into obedience to work plantations, build roads or build houses under the authority of the encomendero within the encomienda. So the sad thing is, is that from the Spanish perspective, they were viewing native people as subhumans and basically just property. They were just living human property that can be forced to do whatever it is they needed to do. Now, encomenderos were granted that land under the requirement that they convert those human beings. They had to provide for the religious education of native and indigenous people. They were required to do it. They were they had to do it. And so this the encomienda system in a lot of cases included arrangements and agreements with religious Catholic missionaries. And part of a powerful encomienda with an hacienda, basically a feudal lord, basically the same pattern as feudalism, they were supposed to make sure that they had their churchmen, their clergymen, in order to build missions. Well, of course, the labor of building that missions was still native people. It was still indigenous people. So native people were required to build the instruments of their ideological programming forcing them into a foreigner's religion because Christianity is a foreign religion. It has no inherent right to exist on this land. The Eshtokna have an inherent right to live on this land, and the Eshtokna have an inherent right to live their life ways. But Christianity has no inherent right to exist in this hemisphere. But the force conversion, and then later people being in the habit of converting and understanding Christianity, has pushed out the life ways that were there originally. The Buffalo Calling Song 
わかてわかてわかてあかえわかてあかえあえけねななわぞへけねななわぞへわかてあかえあえわかてわかてわかてあかえわかてあかえあえけねななわぞへけねななわぞへわかてあかえあえわかてわかてわかてあかえわかてあかえあえけねななわぞへけねななわぞへわかてあかえあえわかてわかてわかてあかえわかてあかえあえけねななわぞへけねななわぞへわかてあかえあえ The Ishtokna people and their lifeways are still present in their homelands. Despite European colonizers' attempts at complete erasure of the indigenous peoples of South Texas through generations of genocide and broken treaties, the Ishtokna continue to resist colonization, rebuild their villages, and claim their connection to these、uh, lands. Back to this concept of colonial genocide, colonizers were forcing human beings to give up their lifeways that were given to them by Creator, give up their languages that were given to them by Creator. And no longer live in such a way that they had for generations and for centuries, and to live in constant reciprocal, respectful relationships with all other living beings around them in their homelands through prayer, through song, through ceremony, through offerings. And they were forced to completely transform their economy, their sense of place. They were to give up their ceremonies and take on the ceremonies of their. Torturers and abusers and colonizers. All of this was done and justified in the minds of the colonizer that native people were subhuman or inhuman or demonic. And the economic, the political, and religious forces of Europe come together in colonization in order to completely transform native people at the individual level and communal level into being second or third class Europeans on land that isn't European. Eurocentric colonization creates the history of white supremacy by saying that Aboriginal peoples in the Americas must change, convert themselves not only religiously but their lifeways to all of the institutions and structures that are Eurocentric, and therefore it places Indigenous and Aboriginal peoples in this unequal power system where they're always going to be unequal because they're not the people creating the rules. It's the Eurocentric genocidal consciousness that's creating the rules. These Eurocentric rules Dr. Basaldu is talking about function to further disenfranchise indigenous peoples, including black indigenous peoples forcibly moved through the violent history of slavery and other people of color. Rules of education, environment, religion, politics, beauty, nearly everything in society. Okay, yeah, so human beings come into this area, and the original people. Descendant after thousands and thousands and thousands of years, are the Ishtokna for this land, for this area, and being in a homeland means that the people continue the relationships with their homelands and live in their homelands as Creator intended them to. 
live in their homelands. And they live in these relationships not only with each other, with human beings, but they live in relationship to the land itself, the spirit river, the sacred river, the waters, knowing where there's drinking water and the difference between non-drinking water, non-potable water, having the proper respectful relationships with other animals, which are also sentient beings, right? And other plants, which are also living beings with a spirit. And on top of that, a lot of these different relatives, plant relatives and animal relatives, have power or have medicine or have knowledge that help the people have a better life. What's awful and horrible about invasion and genocide and forced conversion and colonization is that breaks those relationships, that forces the people to adapt to a less respectful life way. And it's the healing of those relationships, I think, that would heal the people and vice versa. When I talk about healing, living in a way that restores the respectful relationships between the people, not just individual natives, but indigenous people to their homelands, to their sacred history, to their ancient ceremonies, and to their languages. That's what I mean when I talk about healing. Reading the names off of the headstones at the cemetery, one might not immediately recognize that many of these ancestors are Ishtokna. Spanish and English colonization and invasion resulted in the Anglicization and Hispanicization of names. Non-Spanish language names were changed to spellings nearer to Spanish or English sounds or completely replaced altogether with similar or equivalent Spanish or English names. So with the encomienda system and then the subsequent Spanish land grant system, which is sort of the inheritor consciously of the encomienda system, an encomendero would just give their Spanish name to the people that were from that land. So you have names that would be like De Garcia, because the encomendero is Garcia, and the people that are of Garcia, that's De Garcia. That's not Garcia, that's De Garcia. But then later on, as life goes on, people abbreviate those things and they drop the De, and then Garcia just becomes the last name. So that's the Spanishization of these last names. The same pattern applies with Anglicization, because you get another wave of colonization and invasion and settler colonialism, and then you have people either through marriage or through just wanting to change their names, or, hey, I'll get a job easier and faster if I just change my name, or, hey, I got a job at this ranch over here, they don't know how to pronounce my first name or my last name, so they just gave me a new name, and then that person takes over that name in the future, and that's the Anglicization process of those names. So English and Spanish both being foreign languages, being colonizer languages, oppressor languages, in order for people to adapt to the systems that they've been left with, even if they're in a negative position of power, they're still adapting in order to survive and give life to the next generation. Well, after 500 years of that, of course native people are going to have Spanish last names. Of course native people are going to have English last names. Or whatever other colonizing language. French, Portuguese, German. That's how that happens. Prior to the organization and establishment of the United States of America into colonial eras, into colonial times, where you have colonial governments with a documented history of interaction with native groups as nations, as the United States, after its establishment, kept its genocidal campaign of land theft and resource theft by expanding westward, it came into contact with ever more 
native and indigenous people because it's a lie that the land was empty. It's a, it's a self-comforting, self-serving lie that the United States of America has to tell itself in order to assuage their conscience and believe that the land was empty and that the pioneers and the settlers were, oh, they were just so brave and they went westward and established themselves and they worked hard and then they made themselves rich. No, most settlers that were going westward were a bunch of filthy people who were psychopaths and murdered native people in order to steal their land and to take their, take their resources. So throughout that process, the United States recognizes who are sort of the leaders of any particular native group in order to make a treaty with them or to make an agreement with them. And that history is pretty fraudulent as well because the United States was going to choose the people that they thought were native leaders as opposed to, in many cases, they were not talking to the actual leaders. It was just easier from the United States' perspective to just say, no, 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 we're going to appoint these particular native people to be the ones that we're going to interact with. We're going to make an agreement with them. We're going to recognize them as the authorities even when they weren't. And so hence, taking of land in that regard, even if it was by treaty, was fraudulent because they weren't talking to the right people. The Deer Calling Song Many descendants of the Ishtokna come from families who have never moved away from the area of their ancestral homelands, like Dr. Basaldu. They have survived colonization, forced forgetting, and five centuries of genocidal and racist laws and policy. Still, the tribe is not formally recognized by the United States or by the state of Texas. Um, it's tough to talk about because on the one hand, now, in the contemporary period, Native nations that have federal recognition have at least some form of economic benefits. Now, these economic benefits are minuscule. They do not represent in any way, shape, or form what the United States government agreed to provide for Native nations and Native people. Not at all. And if we were to try to calculate the amount of whatever benefit the United States owes all Native nations, it's incalculable. And the United States has gotten away with, if they're going to be, you know, here's a metaphor, paying rent to Native people, they owe back rent. The United States has never fully given back to Native people what was contracted through treaty processes. Okay, well, back to the Eshtokna. One, as a people, we don't need the United States to tell us whether or not we exist. We know we exist. We don't need the state of Texas government to tell us that we exist because we know we exist. On the other hand, there might be some minuscule economic benefit in being recognized by the federal government and demanding from the federal government some form of recompense. But then the flip side of that is, under current United States legal systems and economic systems, any federally recognized tribe comes under the control and surveillance of the Department of the Interior through the Bureau of Indian Affairs and is, you know, under some control and surveillance constantly by the federal government. 
government. In that regard, why would any indigenous nation want to give up its autonomy and sovereignty to recognize the United States as somehow being politically superior? And that's the conundrum. This is one month Chair of the Carizo Comicuro tribe of Texas. Juan is a descendant of Manuel Cavazos, sole survivor of the 1857 Devil's River Massacre in Texas, another lie by Texas in U.S. history, which caused the massacre, the Devil's River Battle. Juan has spent his life fighting the environmental destruction of our Mother Earth, advocating to stop fracking, fracked gas terminals, and new oil and gas pipelines throughout Texas. He also educates people about the Eshtoknaz lifeways and teaches the Hokum language. He is one of many members of the tribe who lead the Eshtokna people's struggle to stop the border wall as they rebuild their ancestral villages along the sacred Rio Grande. My name is Juan Mancias. I'm the tribal chair. That's my title for the Carrizo Comicrudo tribe of Texas. And I'm uh, here at the Eli Jackson Cemetery or Jackson Brewster Cemetery, which is a Texas historical site that's being threatened by some ignorance of a wall. And I think it's, like, again, another part of oppression and ethnic cleansing and trying to uh, accommodate a uh, sick colonial mentality. The place here was called El Capote. We as, as original people of Texas have aboriginal inherent rights to this area. The indigenous communities in this area before colonization, where Yalui village stands now, was called El Capote by the Spanish colonizers when they came to Sumisec. And uh, so we have a, a duty to the ancestors that we finally have started to implement because many of us have been able to understand and get an education of, of what has happened in the United States toward Native people. And knowing that we are people of Native descent, especially of, the, of this area, and those of us who have been able to maintain some of the lifeways and are, are recognized for you know, some of the medicine that, that grew in this area and that has been oppressed as well. Calling the Medicine Song Kopayema, Kopayema, Panayowe, Panayowe. Kopayema, Kopayema, Panayowe, Panayowe. He's referring to the sacred medicine of the Eshtokna, Kop. It's the cactus commonly referred to as peyote that has been made illegal by the United States as part of the continued religious persecution of indigenous people in a country that claims it was founded upon principles of religious freedom. We are speaking out for our sacred sites. We're only focused on one thing here, and that's the wall, you know, and we're talking about building these villages to be able to do that. You know, I think we can do this. I think we can build villages all along the Rio Grande. And basically, we're going to make stands like this everywhere we go, everywhere that, that they want to, you know, put this monstrosity. But we got to stop it. I don't think people realize that from here, from where the levee is right here to where the river is, where the imaginary border is, it's over almost two miles, you know. Because this wall here in Texas is not going along the Rio Grande. And the, that, that imaginary line is in the middle of the Rio Grande. 
people need to understand that it, there you're being lied to. And uh, Texas needs to realize that it's got to implement its state's rights against the federal government in this case and say, no, you can't do this anymore. And then in terms of the effect on the environment that the border wall might have, have the proper environmental impact statements been conducted to do this construction? Not, not, no, no. Like I said, their due diligence is great. This is, this is, this is a, a stupid <laughs> and ignorant, and, and to let it happen is a, is a lack of education. The Estokna are worried that the construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall will unearth the remains of their ancestral artifacts, not only at the Eli Jackson Cemetery in so-called San Juan, Texas, but at ancestral burial sites and villages all along the Rio Grande. This area, including the levee that the border wall will be placed on, is no stranger to the desecration of human remains. All the I can't tell you how many sacred sites have been looted over the last 150 years just to build even the levee that's here next to us. They were digging the canal and the, and the, and the levee here and they were uh, throwing bones to the side like, you know, they were nothing. There's been this mentality because of Texas promoting ethnic cleansing of Native America in, in, in Texas has kind of set up a void in here. They do whatever they want to here without doing any due diligence. Again, if they find, if they find bones, they don't have to tell anybody. In other words, they're going to loot it. They're the ones looting. They're the criminals, you know. So they're, they're waving the law to break the law. We, and we know because there's Border Patrol agents that, that have retired or have, have quit and brought back, you know, arrowheads and, and other things that they've looted along the way. What they're saying to us is that nobody exists here. Jackson Cemetery, along with other burial grounds along the Rio Grande, would normally be protected under federal laws like the Antiquities Act, the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, and NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. NAGPRA requires federal agencies to return unearthed remains and artifacts of indigenous peoples to their lineal descendants. However, Former Secretary of Homeland Security Department Christian Nielsen has evoked powers given by the Real ID Act of 2005's amendment to the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996. These two laws have a sordid history together. The first, 
the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, was used to overhaul the United States immigration system, creating the U.S. deportation machine as it is today, and making it more difficult for immigrants to obtain citizenship. Then, almost 10 years later, in the name of the post-9-11 racist war against terror, the Real ID Act of 2005 made an amendment to this immigration law changing what had previously allowed the waiving of two named federal laws to the waiving of all laws that interfere with the fast and efficient construction of barriers in the interest of national security. It states, quote, the Secretary of Homeland Security shall have the authority to waive all legal requirements. Such Secretary, in such Secretary's sole discretion, determines necessary to ensure expeditious construction of the barriers and roads under this section. This was used in order to waive 28 federal laws along the southern border, including NAGPRA, so that the Trump administration can continue upon the years of border wall construction already completed under previous administrations. These laws are vital to our environmental protection and are safeguards for historic sites and human remains. Due to this waiver, and without proper environmental service or community input, border wall construction happens completely outside the scope of federal regulations, resulting in neither the government nor the populace knowing the full ramifications of construction. Normally, Anytime the federal government undertakes an action expected to significantly affect the environment, they have to go through the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, which means they have to complete an exhaustive survey of the impacts of those actions, often through use of environmental assessments and environmental impact statements. But NEPA has been waived entirely along the southern border. And so the impacts of this wall on endangered and threatened species, flow of water, and habitat connectivity have not been researched. If you don't know what a broken treaty is, when they waive 28 laws that protect your health, that protect your family, protect your future generations, that's what a broken treaty is. That those, that those eight laws that were waived are treaties. So they're breaking treaties. And we're talking about a mile and a half from here where they're going to be digging up our bones. You know, later on, they can dig anything they want to in this land. You know, there's a common denominator here. You know, the bottom denominator is the land. The land's what owns us, and it owns that native native part of who we are. And we have we have a duty and a, and a responsibility to that land. Because these are our ancestors. You're walking on them, not, not just because you see the graves behind them. But even out here where they've built these fields, there used to be nothing but forest out here. There's a deforestation that's occurred through the gentrification of the valley, of the delta here. And it's starting to happen all the way up the river. Border wall construction has already begun in so-called South Texas. In Somisek, lands of the Ishtokna, it has already caused environmental destruction of critical wildlife corridors and refuges. Only 5% of the native riparian, floodplain, and wetland habitats remain along the lower Rio Grande and its local tributaries. The border wall is planned to further destroy the remaining habitat by impacting over 13,000 acres of wildlife refuge tracks in Hidalgo and Star County alone. The U.S.-Mexico borderlands is one of the most biologically diverse regions in North America. Stretching from San Diego, California, to Brownsville, Texas, there is a diverse patchwork of wildlife habitats from the Sonoran and Chihuahuan deserts to the subtropical, semi-arid, and densely forested Tamaulipan thorn scrub in the Rio Grande Valley by the Rio Grande. The Rio Grande Valley in particular holds 11 distinct ecosystems, 
defying the singular image that many outsiders think of when envisioning the borderlands. Even though the valley holds one of the most diverse ecosystems on this continent, it has suffered generations of disrespect, resulting in massive habitat destruction. Since the 1930s, 95% of the native habitat in the lower Rio Grande Valley has been destroyed due to irresponsible U.S. corporate farming, big agriculture, and rapid urban development, trading in native biodiversity for monocultures as far as the eye can see. It is the surviving but dwindling 5% of native habitat that is under threat of destruction by border wall construction. The Eagle Calling Song so we're trying to make people understand to to live with what they have and not destroy any more of what is around us because it's important to us. This whole area had abundance of native life, native fauna, native trees like the retamas and, you know, the huisaches. And, of course, the wildlife was all over the place. Everything's sacred. All this is sacred. All this is medicine to us. We used to make baskets out of the retama, you know, and we used to use the huisache to make our homes. So, I mean, it's all sacred. These trees here are native to here, the huisache and, and the hackberry. Um, these are all needed for the woodpeckers and for the flickers and, you know, for the other animals that, are, that come through here that nest here. Uh, and also for the butterflies. So we had dances to the ocelot and to the, to the bear and to the deer. We have our, still have our dances. We stand up for our rights, for our, especially for our original inherent rights of the land, uh, to protect it, to maintain it, to preserve it. That means we're preserving our tribal identity as well. In late January, the family members of those buried in the cemetery and allies came together to clear out the brush and trash there and to build Yalui Village. When we first came here, this place was all covered. You couldn't see any of this. The only places you could see was over here in the corner, and uh, we had to walk through high grass to, to, to get to the other graves. We didn't know that there were these many graves, and once we started clearing it, we started recognizing that there were other burials here. Um, this is considered one of the Freedmen's cemeteries uh, here because it was part of the Underground Railroad, so we, we want to make sure that we emphasize these things of what we're doing here. We're really taking care of the things that are here, taking care of our, our relatives, 
that are here. They're going to have to move us, you know, some way or the other. We're not leaving here. We, our direct action is that we're here. And uh, we're here on the cemetery to protect it. This is occupied land. I think they, they need to understand what culture is. They need to understand the history of this land before, before you know, they, they even decide to put up, put up a wall. And just because we, we crossed, you know, a lot of us crossed that river doesn't mean that that's Mexico and this is the United States. That's still Somisek. That's still where our people live over there. Our relatives live over there. You know, so we haven't forgotten who our relatives are. We're not disconnected. All the way down to Tierra del Fuego, those are native people, and we have some connection with them in some way. There were trade routes all the way down there, all the way up to the Arctic Circle. There were trade routes. And that's documented with places where people would meet to trade, like the Fallen Timbers and Rescate Canyon up in, in South Texas, Paladero Canyon. You know, these are documented. We got to stop being colonized as native people. We are of this one people, you know. We are of this one people of this land. There's an inherent right to migrate. If these people are coming and seeking asylum from being oppressed themselves. They shouldn't be oppressed here by people that, that really don't have any claim to this land and want to make laws and then, you know, constitute policy and make people criminals because they help people like that. If those people come across that river and they ask for asylum, you know, they need to be given asylum, and that's the law. They still have the right to have asylum. That's every human right. The thing is that we, we understand the whole idea of inherent rights of migration, and uh, we continue to speak about that because they, they only find it it's okay for them to, to migrate from across the ocean and come this way, and that's fine with them, you know. The thing that they're doing here is that they're just making it harder for us to accept that there's got to be some healing with this racist society that we live in. And uh, the healing's got to start when they realize that they're the racist, you know, and <laughs> they are being awful to people of color. Ama to meter compa, ama to meter compa, ama to meter compa, ama to meter. We leave you with the words of Juan speaking on the Rio Grande at a march against the border wall at the National Butterfly Center in May. Mata ya ye kwampa Mata ya ye kwampa When they don't do due diligence when they don't do a real understanding and a research of the history of this land then it's oppressive to the people of the land and it continues to be oppressive when you continue to become more generic about it but there've been people living here for a long long time and all we're saying is we're here to help. We're here to collaborate with everybody. We're not here to say we're better than anybody. We're just saying, hey, we're the original people from this land, and we have a voice, and we know with our inherent original rights, the inherent original rights of this land, we can probably stop some of this madness, some of this ignorance, you know, because that's the enemy. Ignorance is the enemy. And it consumes us all. And that's why it's important that you know who your grandfathers and grandmothers are. 
who your great-grandmothers are, who your great-grandfathers are, because that's the only way that you're going to be able to fight this enemy, is to stay alive and to continue that life seven generations from now, ten generations from now, because it continues to live, because there's a language and there's a way of life or a call life way that we live. We're not a religious people. We're a people that have a way of life. We don't have words for prayer. We have sending our voice. We say, look at my heart, look, look, look at my spirit, and look at the way I live, because that's who we are. But when they start waving laws that apply to every one of you, every one of you as a citizen, every one of these children, are, they're breaking treaties with them, with those 28 laws that they they waive. So if you don't know what a breaking of the treaty is, you as a U.S. citizen are going through broken treaties because they've waived those laws. The right to have clean water, the right to have clean air, the right to be able to cross and to hold these things sacred. These ocelots, the great egrets, the blue herons, all of these things need to be looked at and say, hey, I have a right to see that. My children have a right to see that. My grandchildren have a right. Each one of you is going through broken treaties right now with the ignorance that's out there. And that's the only way you can see it, because that's who the enemy is, and it's ignorance. And that's why we're here. This land, we don't own it. This land, it owns us. We are this land. The ancestors are here. The ancestors that, where you're standing, you're standing on my ancestors. For over 10,000 years, they've been part of this land. And that's why we stand up with you uh, on all of this. They're disrespecting your relatives, and they're actually disrespecting my ancestors when they do that and our ways of life. My spirituality lies in those tears, in that blood, and in that sweat that my people have given so that I can say I am Eshtokna, so that I can say I am Apayeso, give life to everything that is here. And that's why we're here. And that's why this water is important. That's why this river to us is important. This we call the Spirit River because we lived on both sides of this river, but now They've divided even that. The judges saw we live in divisions, and we're okay with it. Well, I, all I can say is I'm here to collaborate and try to break down some of these divisions, and that's why we're here, and that's why we'll always be here. Shama piquis, shama piquis, shama piquis, kol masemikle. This piece was produced, narrated, co-written by Vinisha Patel-Adams at bellyofthebeastmedia.org. Co-produced, co-written, and recorded by Garrett Blair on Facebook at Garrett Blair Journalism. Adapted from an article by Garrett Blair for the indigenous rights magazine Intercontinental Cry. Thank you to the Ishtokna Nation, the Carizo Comecudo Tribe of Texas, for their time lent to this piece. To get involved or to find out more about their efforts in protecting their sacred homelands of Somisek from border wall construction for generations to come, go to carizocomecrudotribeoftexas.org or on Facebook at Yaluí Village or Carizocomecrudo Tribe of Texas.